Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to you by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee, and he is preaching on the book of Obadiah. All right, so Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book of the 12 minor prophets. It's only 21 verses. And and here's the thing, we know very little to almost nothing about the author of this particular book, this prophecy. The name Obadiah, it translates to servant or worshiper of Yahweh. So, you know, that's a pretty good name to have. So it's very common back in the day. So it, it, there are 13 Obadiahs in the Bible. It's like naming somebody like Anna or Chris or Mike or Grace, because we have a lot of those in this church. And you're going to find more than a few of the people with the same name. So, and we're not even sure if this is naming somebody. It could just be a descriptor. It's a vision of Obadiah. We know it's not one of the 13 just because of the timing of uh, where those people were. Also, this book isn't even about Israel, at least not directly, which is a little odd because the majority of the Old Testament really is about Israel, but this one's about Israel's brother, Esau, or more specifically, the children of Esau. So, so what I want to do today is before we get into what God's telling us today in this short prophecy from centuries ago, I want to set the stage a bit. Because in the, in, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of Father Abraham, uh, who begat Isaac, and then Isaac begat a couple of others, uh, twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And, and their story, it, it is a very dramatic story. Um, Esau, the older of the twins, because he was older, he was endowed with the family birthright. And what that means is that he had a right to a double portion of the inheritance, and he was deemed the spiritual head of that family. But he gave it up for a bowl of soup. Now, some folks will think that Jacob, the younger twin, he tricked Esau into giving him that birthright. But if you read through it, there's no tricking involved. See, Esau comes to his brother after working in the field. He's exhausted and he's hungry. He says, hey, can I get some of that stew you're making? And I think Jacob's a jerk, right? I mean, just give your brother some soup. But instead, he says, there was no trickery involved. He says, no, if you want some, give me your birthright. And Esau... He just made a choice. He chose not to care about his ancestral claim or his responsibility as a spiritual head, as the eldest child. Then later on, though, Jacob did do another pretty jerky thing. He, he tricked his dad, Isaac, into, into giving him the blessing that was intended for Esau. And then, because he did that out of fear, Jacob runs away, right? Decades later, here comes Jacob. He's all successful, and he's rich. And now he has to deal with his father-in-law. He's got his own drama going on. And he realizes it's time to go back home, where Esau lives. And on the way back to his brother, Jacob, he ends up wrestling with someone. It's either this angel or God. The Bible says this, that Jacob wrestled with a man until the breaking of the day. And I love the imagery in there because it kind of cracks me up because the other person Jacob is wrestling, that person, all he does is touches Jacob's hip and all of a sudden the dude can't walk. He's got this massive limb. All he did is touch it. So the image I have in my head is like, you ever done this to a kid? You just hold them by the head and the kid's like trying really hard to fight and you're just like this. This is the image I have of Jacob. He's that kid. He's just fighting everything with all his might. Anyway, after... Hours of this, Jacob 
by God is renamed Israel. And Israel now goes to face his brother Esau. And they reconcile. This is what Genesis 33 tells us. It's a beautiful story about Esau, the older brother who, who lost his birthright for a bowl of soup, who had his blessing stolen from him from his younger twin brother. This guy ran to his twin and hugged him and said, welcome home. These were the brothers that started the nations of Israel and Edom. And this is the context that sets the stage for this prophecy against Edom. And ultimately, the lessons that we can learn from it. And the thing that I want to point out is that the brothers reconciled. The kids didn't. And that's where we're coming to. Now, there are a couple of words in here before we get too deep into it that I think we need to stop and consider. And the first one is in the second half of the first verse, Edom. It says, the Lord God concerning Edom is what it says there. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, this thing where people will look at a sentence or a paragraph and there'll be uh, letters jumbled or vowels missing from it, but they're still able to read it. It's, it's mind-blowing when I do that because, you know, your brain is basically a, a code-breaking machine. It's able to figure it out. Hebrew is similar because it's, it's unique in that vowels are not included in the original text. Hebrew is naturally a code-breaking language. It requires constant interpretation. So it allows for a nuance and a beauty in that language that very few others afford. And an example of this can be seen in that name, Edom. Because Edom in Hebrew, uh, the spelling for it uh, is, this is the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, David, Mem. Right? The spelling of Adam is also Aleph, Dalet, Mem. Adam, the word that's used to refer to all of humanity, all of humanity created in the image of God is spelled the same as Edom, just different vowels that are never included in the text. And so a lot of pastors will look at the word play and say that Obadiah was taking advantage, and I think he was, to, of this to apply prophecy, the prophecy given to Edom from God as something that is also intended for Adam, for all of humanity. The lessons of Edom should be observed, should be applied to Adam. The second word, just really quickly, that I think is worth defining, at least I need it to, is in verse 9. It says, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman. So, and who's, who's Taman, and why is this person suddenly being called out in the prophecy? And let me just explain, Taman is Esau's grandson, and it is also the name of one of the major cities in Edom. And so the reference to Taman is simply a reference to the land and to the people of Edom, the descendants of Esau. Now, the last word before we get into the main point of today's message is that I want to highlight is from verse 21. The last verse, it says, The saviors shall go up to Mount Zion, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And when you read that, that first word, saviors, we're reading from the ESV, it's, it is a little confusing because aren't we taught from a biblical perspective that there are not multiple saviors? Why is it plural? Isn't there only one? And again, I will say this, it's the beauty and the complexity of the Hebrew language that needs to be credited with this confusion. Because I think the end, uh, New Revised Standard Version, I think it translates it more accurately. Because there it says this, those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion instead of saviors. Again, giving you a little Hebrew lesson. Uh, looking at the original Hebrew, the Hebrew word that's being translated using the 
Hebrew alphabet is mem vav shin ayed yod mem. The difference between the two translations, because they use the same consonants, between Savior and saved are the vowels that are not there. Mem vav shin ayed yod mem. With one set of vowels, the pronunciation, the combination of this word, is, it is busha'im, those who have been saved. That same set of consonants, those letters, with a different set of vowels, which are just dots and dashes, is moshim, which means saviors. So we have to take, as always, the passage in context, understand the totality of Scripture, consider the imagery that Obadiah is conveying, and when you do that, I believe that the right pronunciation for this word is Bushaim. And that verse 21 should be read that those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion. That the, that the, the ones that are saved will reign with their one and only God and King. I'll admit, those, that whole introduction is a little nerdy, and I apologize. I'll tell you that when I started first studying this book, I, I really didn't expect to, to spend a lot of time on it. I mean, it's, it's 21 verses. How, how much could there be? But uh, the beauty of the Bible is as each of us strive to know God, dive deeper into Scripture, and to understand the context of every single passage, word, promise, there are so many opportunities to fall in love with the richness of this book. It's so amazing. All right, that's, that's enough with setting the stage. I, I want to look at what God is sharing with us through the words of Obadiah. And I will tell you now, I think what I want to focus on, I think it's simply summarized best in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. And it says there, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. Simple. I want to read to you verses 3 and 4. It says this, the pride, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Pride comes before a fall. So what I want to do, I want to take a minute to look at what pride looked like for the Edomites. I want to look at that to see if maybe you might recognize that, those traits like I did in myself, in yourselves. And then we're going to take a moment to think about and look at what the result, what the response should be as a result of that self-introspection. And I think the first sign of the pride that leads to a fall to doom is found in those verses I just read. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. Now, some of you may uh, be familiar with or seen pictures of the rock city of Petra. If you haven't, go ahead and look it up. This is uh, as part of Edom. Petra is, Petra is part of Edom. And, and they're amazing. They're, I, I don't even have words to describe it. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, this is the city that uh, Indiana and his dad have to go into to get the Holy Grail. The city is obviously impenetrable. It's, it's situated in the mountains. There's sheer cliffs. There's no way that Petra could be, in, or Edom could be invaded, overtaken. And the Edomites, they banked on this. They understood this. They had pride in their nation. They believed that they were number one. And they had so much pride in themselves 
as a people that they didn't need God. The Olympics are in full swing, right? And, and I'll tell you, honestly, I haven't watched any of it. I, I don't know. It's just with everything going on, COVID, people getting sick, Simone Biles stepping down. It's just, I, I, haven't, I haven't been able to get into it myself, but I have. I've watched it before in the in past, and there is absolutely a, a, a nationalist, a, a, a pride that, that bubbles up when you watch the games. It's, it's very, we were just talking about it a second ago outside. You know, a chance of we're number one, USA, or for your Asian, Korea. Actually, I don't know how, what you would yell in Korea. But no matter what the sport is, whether it's surfing or synchronized swimming or race walking, which is a weird sport, whenever, if the U.S. wins, every single American is proud. They're yelling USA, they're yelling we're number one because, because there's pride in the in the American human spirit. And I am not saying that's a, that's a bad thing. I am not proclaiming from the pulpit that you cannot cheer for your country or your country of origin. You should. I mean, these folks have worked hard to, to, to compete. But what I am saying is this. A belief that your country, when it wins, is somehow we're better, somehow more worthy, somehow just because we're American, because we're a specific nationality or a specific ethnic group or a specific color. This is a pride in something that does not coincide with the design of God. See, pride in self over love of God is a certain recipe for a fall. I think the second source of pride that leads to a fall, to a downfall, is, is found in verse 7. It says this, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who, who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. You, you don't have a clue. And the second source of pride, I think, is our associations. And let me explain. Let me give this illustration. Back in 2007, there was a, a writer's strike. Uh, and this writer's strike resulted in... Oh, a lot of reality TV shows suddenly becoming really popular, like Amazing Race, Big Brother. They really started to flourish because there were no writers around to write real TV. Uh, and I bring this up because these shows, as they gain popularity, they, they definitely have a, they show a microcosm of what we see in this passage. Alliances are formed and to advance a particular team in the game, and then suddenly they're quickly dissolved, they're demolished because somebody else wants to win. There, there's a pretty well-known poem. It was written by a German Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, uh, back in World War II. You guys may re uh, recognize it. It goes like this. It goes, first they came for the socialists. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. See, our alliances, our allegiances, our associations, whether they're real or they're perceived, except for our allegiance to our Savior, these things will fade. They will eventually be a pride that leads to a fall. Another source of pride, if you read through this, that I think Obadiah is calling out is Edom's pride in their own wisdom. Verse 8, it says this, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? 
I'll say this, uh, back in my day, and I, I say my day because I, I don't think it's necessarily a thing today as much, but back in my day, there was this belief that it was impossible to be a Christian and a scientist at the same time. And it was a belief that was held by both Christians and scientists. I, I think at the heart of it was evolution, the concept of evolution. Because it was seen as a black or white issue. Either you believed in creationism and that science had nothing to do with creation of the world, or you believed in evolution and that God had nothing to do with the creation of the world. It was either or. That was it. You had to pick a side. And as a result, some, not all, but many, many, many scientists or others, they made the pursuit of knowledge their deity. There was no more need for God. Here's a philosopher, Nietzsche, um, and hopefully I get this right, was credited with the phrase, God is dead. And, you know, it wasn't his original idea, it was, but it was a philosophy that he fought hard for. He tried to espouse that. It was the understanding that religiosity no longer played a role or no longer should play a role in critical thinking among, among scientists or philosophers or artists, among those who sought intellectual dominance. See, for Nietzsche, uh, God's death in his mind was a call to a cultural shift to remove God as a priority. And for our philosophers, hopefully, Mike, I got that right. If I didn't, you can correct me later. Not now. But first, let me say something. I do not agree that science and faith are diametrically opposed to each other. I believe that God created science, and he created the study of it. It's a good thing. I believe that God created the universe and the universes. I believe that evolution was a part of that creation process as evidenced by what God has shown us. I believe science should not be divorced from faith, nor should faith be divorced from science. This is why we wear masks and the staff are wearing masks. The second thing is I do not believe God is dead. I wouldn't be here if I did. I do believe that there are many in this world that have decided that religion is the opiate of the masses and, and, that, and that to lean on the Spirit of God to pursue truth in all things from science to art, that, that there are people who think that this is ridiculous and have decided to wholly lean on themselves in the pursuit of knowledge. God's not dead. But for those, God is not relevant to the lives of these individuals. See, we're called to pursue wisdom. But when the pursuit of wisdom becomes the priority over God, that's when we start getting into a bit of trouble. In Proverbs chapter 1, I'm starting from verse 2, this is what it says. It says, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom begins with a devotion to our God. Wisdom begins when we seek knowledge of the world God created. 
Wisdom includes living a life that's righteous, that's just, that's equitable. Seeking wisdom through the study of science, through critical thinking, these are all things that we are called to do through the lens of the creator of wisdom. See, Edom had pride in their status as Edomites. There was a nationalism that, that minimized other nations all around them. They thought they were better. Edom had pride in their allegiances that ultimately would prove futile and unreliable. Edom had pride in an intellectualism that led to a reliance on themselves over Yahweh. I have to ask, do any of these sound familiar to you? Do they sound like you? Because they definitely sounded familiar to me as I was studying this book. And these are warnings not only for Edom, but for Adam. Verse 15, it says this, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. This is not a warning only for Edom. This is also for Adam, for all of humankind, for all the nations. The warning is this, is there a pride in your nationality or your ethnicity that causes you to focus on that more than God? Is there a reliance on alliances or groups that lead you to lean on that instead of Jesus? Is there a dependence on wisdom over that source, over the source of wisdom? I'll tell you, verses 10 and 11, they give us a vision of what that kind of over-reliance on anything other than the Redeemer could look like. Verse 10 says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, it, it, would have, it would have been kind of easy for Edom to say, well, what, what do we do? We didn't, we didn't start the fight. We didn't attack. Well, they kind of did after the fact. We didn't initiate the fight. See, it wasn't just that active participation of the Edomites against the Israelites that Obadiah was calling the Edomites out on. It was the inactive passivity of the children of Esau as their brothers were being marauded and maligned. That's what resulted in God's wrath. See, it wasn't only their active participation, it was their inactive apathy. It was because they, and I think sometimes we, do nothing when they come for the Jews, when they come for the Native Americans, the African Americans, the Latinx, the Asian Americans, women, children, LGBTQI, vulnerable soldiers, refugees. It's when they came for those who needed the chosen of God, the beloved of God to step up and we don't. That was the result of a pride in self over a devotion to Christ that, that brought God's wrath, that will bring God's wrath on the day of the Lord. See, the saved shall go up to Mount Zion. The saved shall enjoy the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us who the saved are. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, verse, starting with verse 3. It says this, this is the saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the meek. Those who search for righteousness. It's the merciful. It's the pure in heart. This is who we are called to be. We're not called to be reliant on our own ability, our own pride. We're called to be reliant on the one who blesses the poor in spirit. Reliant on the one who, who loves those who mourn for the vulnerable. Reliant on the one who promises something better for the persecuted. 